0: If you're like me, maybe insects give you the creepy crawlies, but you'll have to put that aside today while we learn about how research is helping people manage bugs better. Welcome to Hooked on Science, a podcast where we learn about cool research that you should know about. I'm your host, Julia Cubans. My guest today is Dr. Anna Wallingford, who is an extension specialist in New Hampshire working on entomology and integrated pest management. Anna, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Well, hello. Thank you so much for having me. How long have you been in your extension
1: position? Yeah, so I've been here for two years, but my role has changed a little bit. So when I first came on board, I was 100% extension, and I've since taken on a couple new roles at the university. So actually I have a really hard time (laughs) explaining what my position is. For UNH Extension, I am the Entomology and Integrated Pest Management Specialist. I'm also a researcher at New Hampshire's Ag Experiment Station and I am a faculty member in the Department of Agriculture, Nutrition and Food Systems at UNH. I'm also the state IPM coordinator. So every state in the country is funded to have an IPM implementation program. So I'm the one who coordinates the IPM activities in New Hampshire's extension program.
0: Oh, wow. Well, it sounds like you get to wear a lot of hats, and I think this is a great segue into extension, which if anyone listening listened way back in episode one with Dr. Lily Calderwood... She also works an extension in Maine. But Anna, can you give a short explanation of what extension is as a refresher?
1: Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, maybe 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, the powers that be in our government decided that normal people should be able to go to college, right? It shouldn't be just for rich people who can afford to go to private universities. So, the government gave each state a little hunk of money and a land grant. So, we have a land grant system and land grant universities in every state in the country. And so part of that system was to say that we're going to give each state some money to do research and to teach students at a college level, but we're also going to make an effort to extend that information to the public. So what we learn in our research approaches is extended to the public through extension. I mean really what it means is that you know we take all of the the findings of research and kind of chop it and screw it and turn it into something that is applicable and useful for the general public. Easier said than done, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. How do you determine what problems people actually need addressed?
1: I mean, I'm literally on people's farms constantly and asking them questions and kind of nagging them. And, you know, we'll do a lot of monitoring projects, not necessarily just to generate information from our growers, but to give us an excuse to be on the farm. Right. So we'll just kind of show up once a week, check a trap, give them some information about pests that might be affecting them. But at the same time, have a conversation with them. Right. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, you're here. So, I w- this is something I was thinking about. I mean, especially when it comes to pest management, most people don't pay any attention to information about insects unless it's affecting them personally.
0: I think that's a good place to transition to insects. So, Anna, can you give me a quick overview of what entomology is?
1: Well, entomology is uh, the study of insects and that also usually goes over to arachnids, so we'll study insects, arachnids, anything with an exoskeleton really. Okay. What drew you to
0: insects in the first place? I'm
1: going to be honest with you, it wasn't insects that drew me to my career. I was was really, (laughs) really excited about plants in general. I'm really excited about research. I actually got my start in research in automotive safety testing, <laughs> believe it or not. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was a really, really fun. Job that I had as an undergraduate is I was a, a research assistant for an organization called Advanced Product Testing and Evaluation. We tested all sorts of like visual aspects of cars on a closed research road. And I thought that the people who did that job were just so much fun. And I loved research and loved asking questions. I got a job collecting data for an entomologist. I, was, I took an, an integrated pest management course in college and he was great fun to work with. And I actually had to develop a, a thick skin when it came to working with bugs. I had a hard time looking at or touching bugs when I started. So now that I'm training new entomologists, I have a lot of sympathy for people who have a bit of a learning curve. But they're terrific little animals. If you're interested in, in animal behavior, insects are the, the way to go. And that's what really drove me to to get into the field that I'm in, is studying the the behavior and the biology of these little fantastic
0: animals. Very cool, yeah. My first research job was on an integrated pest management experiment, and I can definitely attest that flipping over leaves and You know, something flying off immediately was always a little bit startling, I guess. (laughs) Well, we always say, you know, like we love cute
1: little fuzzy animals like squirrels and stuff, but I don't think you would be very happy if you had a squirrel flying at you either.
0: No, definitely not. You mentioned integrated pest management. Can you talk a little bit more about what IPM is? Yeah, IPM is, well, it means something
1: different to pretty much anybody who, who you talk to. But historically, integrated pest management came about when people were using really heavy duty broad spectrum insecticides and realizing you know they're really helpful tools but we need to think twice about how we integrate these into these kind of semi natural agricultural systems so the first people who started using integrated pest management as a practice were thinking about how to use chemical tools in combination with biocontrols and recognizing that you know nature does some of the work for you can you just define what biocontrol is oh sure yeah so when we say biocontrol we are really referring to any biological organism that does the the dirty work for us. So a biocontrol agent could be a predator so something that eats the, the insects that you're trying to manage. We're thinking like ladybugs and things like that. There's specialized predators that we call parasitoids. Parasitoids are parasites that, that will live inside their host and kill their host. Um, there's also entomopathic fungi and bacteria and entomopathic nematodes. These are all biological organisms that are known to knock back pest populations and have been harnessed for for pest management.
0: Okay, great. So now let's jump back to what IPM is. Really, the first steps
1: of IPM is figuring out what your problem is. And then you can figure out how bad your problem is. And then you can figure out what you're going to do about it, right? So there's multiple steps between... You know, actually taking out a spray gun, or or taking out a biocontrol agent, or or making changes to how you grow your crop. So there's a lot of focus on the chemical, biological, and cultural controls that you might use in an IPM approach. But you know, way down the line, is figuring out what's causing your problem and how bad the problem is.
0: Is there anything in particular that makes a pest a pest? In a lot of circumstances, there's some math done where
1: there's a, a balance between how much it would cost to control the pest and how much the pest costs. But in a more philosophical approach, you know, sometimes these decisions are made emotionally. So an example I like to make is your threshold for mice in your house is probably zero. I think. I think that the threshold for mice in maybe your barn might be a little bit higher right so in your house you have a low threshold for mice so you would take out all the tools in your ipm toolbox to fix that problem in your barn your threshold tire maybe it'd be a maybe a biological control like a cat would be acceptable and you wouldn't have to worry about integrating all your tools but that's kind of where I start with that to say, you know, you have multiple tools in your IPM toolbox, given the circumstance and given what tools you're willing to use, it's, it's using all those in, in, in avoiding e- crop loss or, or whatever you've deemed is your unacceptable damage in that situation. Something that was added to integrated pest management was, is the the concept of thresholds. So c- some kind of acceptable level of damage. So you've decided that, well, you've decided that an organism is a pest. And at some point you have to decide how much of that pest organism is acceptable. You know, this insect might be causing feeding damage, it might be chewing on the leaves of a plant, but we know enough about the biology of that plant and the system where that plant, as long as it's a nice, healthy plant, can take a little bit of feeding from, say, Japanese beetle, and there'll be a threshold of feeding before you'll see that, that Japanese beetle feeding and the, the leaf tissue lost by Japanese fe- beetle feeding is going to actually impact the thing that you're producing, which might be a fruit or a nut or something like that. So um, that is the difference between maybe, I don't know, a nuisance pest or an economically damaging pest.
0: And as we're talking about pests, I feel like there are kind of two ways people think about insects, either as pollinators or as pests. And I believe you work mainly on the pest side of things, correct? Pretty much, yep. What kind of insects do you work with and what kind of crops are you looking at?
1: Currently, my job at the University of New Hampshire is focused on horticultural crops, so fruit and vegetable crops and the pest insects that might be affecting pretty much anything. However part of my role in extension is often identifying insects generally so you mentioned that a lot of people think about pests as either being like pests or beneficial like pollinators but for the most part most insects are completely benign they have no real impact on our lives so a a lot of the times i'll be getting emails from a member of the public a backyard gardener even one of my farmers that says i have this damage on my plants i found this bug can you tell me what it is and it's often just kind of a benign bystander an innocent bystander that was caught at the scene of the crime so uh, really when it comes to that that Continuum of of good guy, bad guy. Most insects are in the middle. They're they're just living their lives, right? So, that is a huge part of my job is identifying the problem.
0: Okay, we did a little bit of jumping around. We talked about the IPM and we talked about extension. Let's tackle the research part, but first, let's take a quick break. happy last week of July. I'm glad to have you here. Thanks for tuning in to episode 12 of Hooked on Science. If you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. I hope you'll subscribe and come back again. If you're a regular listener, thanks for sticking around and loving learning. I love it too. That is why I'm doing this. Hooked on Science is one of my PhD projects because I think that as scientists and researchers, we need to learn how to present our data and information better. And I'm hoping that podcasting is a viable way to do that. So if you've learned something today or in any episode, tell me about it. I would love to know what topics you found interesting and engaging. You can send me an email at hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com if you want to share. I would be thrilled to hear from you. As always, I am looking for new participants constantly, so if you have a friend or a family member or a neighbor or you are doing cool research, I want to hear about it. You can send me an email to learn more about the process of becoming a guest co host. I promised it is painless. Again, that email is hooked on at gmail.com. I want to thank Lily, who was on episode one of the podcast, for recommending Anna to me for this episode. If you recommend someone to me, you too can get a special shout out on the episode that that person appears on. So maybe that's added incentive, but maybe it's not. Either way, let me know if you know someone who would be a good fit for the podcast. If you want to stay up to date on all the podcast news, you can follow me on Twitter at Hooked on Science or on Facebook and Instagram at Hooked on Science Pod. I try to put up posts when new episodes are released or if any of the guest co-hosts have any cool updates. So go follow those accounts on whatever social media you use and you can stay up to date on everything Hooked on Science. New episodes are released every other Wednesday. The next episode will be up on August 12th. In the meantime, catch up on any episodes that you haven't heard yet and send me an email about what you like, what you didn't like, and then go ahead and follow the pod on social media. So Anna, before the break we talked about IPM, we talked about extension. So how do you determine if an insect is worth studying in an IPM context if it's important to these growers that you're working with? Well, actually, you know, I think I might
1: answer that question in terms of IPM and in terms of extension, but it's also becoming more and more common for extension specialists to do research as well. And the research that a lot of extension specialists will do is often somewhere in between that continuum of research and extension. So like super, super applied research and the stuff that I've been much more interested in now that i'm in a in somewhat new position for for me in my career is looking at research questions that maybe aren't the sexiest from a research point of view that like that maybe you wouldn't write a grant for a three-year project to study but they might be really applicable to a grower right so the best way to identify the importance of a research question is to say like okay what's wh- where is there a problem that is not solvable
0: what's an example of a project that you work on?
1: So right now I'm studying cucumber beetle affecting cucurbits. And that is something that like, especially organic growers, they have a really, really hard time managing this pest for a lot of different reasons. So we're looking at all sorts of funny things, um, comparing whatever the standard organic practices to maybe vacuuming them off the plants with a, with a, with a DVAC. And is that is that a viable option are you going to damage your plants more by vacuuming them than by you know what you're avoiding when you're sucking them off so if we make the mistakes for growers ahead of time and deliver that information in you know an evidence-based way that's really powerful. uh, You know a few other things that we've been thinking about I think most people have a lot of personal experience with aphids on plants and there's a lot of products that are like, like soaps and salts and things like that that are kind of applied preventatively when you first see them but we're also kind of curious if just water does a really good job if irrigation does a little bit of that work for you. So we've been thinking about you know, are there ways that you can treat transplants before they go into the ground? So say you start vegetable transplants in a high tunnel early in the spring, and there is a a lingering aphid population that you didn't know about, right? Are there things you can do to that whole tray that would be acceptable in any situation and won't hurt the plants. So something we're thinking about doing is submerging them and then planting them out and seeing if that, you know, and, and these are the kinds of things that, you know, a grower might not be able to take that risk. A researcher probably wouldn't want to take a risk to spend their research dollars on things like that. So those are those sweet spot applied research questions that I'm really interested in.
0: You have these plants that aren't mobile and you have these pests that are how do you implement research to study these insects when they might just be there for a snapshot of time and not, you know, for an extended period of time, like a plant is in the ground?
1: <laughs> well, something that I like to drive home a lot of people is that the plants that we grow are domestic creatures, right? So even though there are a lot of natural processes that we can take advantage of, we do have to keep in mind that horticulture and agriculture in general is, isn't really a natural circumstance, right? You're growing a whole lot of plants that are pest insects like. So going back to the question of what makes a pest, you know, a pest is something that has taken advantage of, of, of this situation, right? Their, their population has grown beyond what it would be if it was just taking advantage of wild host species. So that's something I like to keep in mind. So we're thinking about how we're protecting these domestic Organisms. And in IPM terms, we're thinking about physical approaches. You know, can you create a physical barrier around that plant to prevent that that insect from moving on it entirely? So we'll use row covers. Uh, Kale and clay surround is, is a material that can be sprayed right on the plant and that will provide some physical protection to the plant. Once those insects get on the plants, we can use natural enemies, either other insects that are already living there, as long as we're not killing them with pesticides. And in a lot of circumstances, we can release more predators. So that's what we mean by biocontrol. And then once you get to chemical controls, there's all sorts of different tools that can be used to um, avoid that pest population from reaching economically threatening populations, um, insect growth regulators, and then you kind of work your way up to to a little bit more disruptive chemicals, so some broad spectrum insecticides that can be used to knock that population back. IPM tells us that we should be a little bit reticent about using broad spectrum chemicals because that does disrupt the natural balance of predators that live in that environment. But there's lots of circumstances where that's the, the best way to protect those plants that you have been cultivating in that situation.
0: Okay, so it sounds like there's just a lot of strategies you can use to help protect your crops. These, as you said, domesticated, unnatural kind of systems that we're working in. Are there any insects or crops that have been particularly challenging for you to work with?
1: So these annual crops that you plant every year. Um, you have a little bit more control over those crops. you can you can move them from year to year. You can rotate those those man-made habitats for pest insects. And if you know that uh, a key pest that you're working with, so say you're working you're growing potatoes, you, you're gonna get Colorado potato beetle. However, you do know that you can move that potato field somewhere else um, and make those bugs move around to find your potatoes. So you have more control when it comes to an annual crop. When it comes to perennial crops, those plants are stuck there, and they're stuck there for, for 5, 10, 20, 30 years, depending on on the, the age of the plants that you're dealing with. So you're a little bit more limited, and you'll have local populations of insects build up there, and they'll become more and more of a problem. And then, of course, you have invasive pests. So, introduce pests that don't have that complex of natural enemies keeping them in check from year to year and that's just the perfect storm of insects that you don't know a lot about them in their in this new range. You don't know a lot about their biology, how they overwinter, how they pass through the season and they are also growing at an exponential rate that you that you you know, have a really hard time taking advantage of cultural controls or biological controls, and you have to rely really heavily on chemical controls. And in a lot of those situations, you might have secondary outbreaks of pests that you never had a problem before. So, you know, some of these insects, I'm thinking about spotted wing drosophila, for example, this is an invasive fly that lays its eggs in small fruit. So blueberries, raspberries, cherries, things like that. In the Northeast, these crops used to be pretty Pest free. I, I mean, knock wood, pest free. A lot of growers who were growing these crops r- relied so lightly on chemical controls that they didn't even have spray equipment. So when this fly showed up and started laying eggs in in these these crops, you know, a lot of people were deciding between buying spray equipment and learning how to do it and getting a, a spray applicator's license and just deciding between that and just renting a bulldozer and bulldozing the whole thing. So it was, a, it was a big, big shift in how people manage these crops. And we are seeing some anecdotal evidence that secondary pests are coming out. So secondary pests, these, these insects that were kind of living in harmony, benign insects that were probably kept pretty well in check by their natural enemies are now reaching pest status.
0: Okay. And just as a fun little question before we start to wrap things up, do you have a favorite insect?
1: (laughs) No, and honestly, I think that's a really funny question. (laughs) Um, Well, I I guess I would say my favorite insect is probably um, the ones that I studied as a student. So when I was a PhD student, I studied harlequin bug which is a specialist feeder of brassicas it's actually a stink bug but this guy not only has it developed a tolerance to the chemical defense mechanisms that brassica have developed these glucosinolates or oil like like the mustard oil glycosides but it sequesters glucosinolates for its own defense so it's bright red or orange behaviorally these little insects like they don't have a defense mechanism because they don't need it they're chemically perfect protective so working within the field is really fun if you're field collecting bugs for experiments it's almost like picking berries to to, to feel collect these bugs so we did a lot of work with the behavior of that insect and it was quite fun to work with
0: nice yeah it must be uh Nice to be able to pick out something that's such a bright color instead of (laughs) a lot of the bugs that are like green or brown.
1: Or jump underneath a leaf if if you're trying to grab it.
0: Ah, yes, that too. Well, as we finish up today, are there any takeaway points you want people to think about as, you know, they listen to this about either IPM or about research or about extension?
1: Well, I always have to put a plug in for extension.
0: Because (laughs) a lot
1: of the times, most people don't know that this is a service for them. It's not just for farmers. It's not just for I'm not sure what people's first, you know, inclination is for extension. But this is a service for you. This is for the public. So please reach out. I think that's something that we always want to say is that we, we literally are waiting for your call. (laughs) So if you have a problem, call Extension. They'll, They'll probably know how to answer the question and or know who can answer the question for you.
0: Awesome. Well, Anna, if people want to learn more about the research you're doing, is there anywhere they can go to find that information?
1: Well, they can certainly go to the UNH extension website, but I also have a podcast called Overinformed on IPM. Nice. And <laughs> that's kind of a jo- that's kind of a joke because I find that in my my civilian life, I'm often overinforming people against their will. But here, people are choosing to come and listen, and it's kind of what you need to know about a specific pest that we're talking about, plus much, much more. Probably more than you need to, but. What might be interesting.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, go check out the UNH website. Go check out Overunformed. And Anna, thank you so much for joining me today. It was really interesting to learn more about the work that you do. Great, thank you. The fun fact for this episode comes from Christopher. Thank you for submitting this. Did you know that zebrafish can regrow parts of their bodies if they get damaged? Even if parts like the heart or the fins, spinal cord, or brain tissue are significantly damaged, they can still grow back, sometimes even dozens of times. Wouldn't that be cool? That is cool, actually. (laughs) And there you have it. If you'd like to share a fun fact or a topically relevant joke for me to read on the episode, email me, DM me, tweet at me, and you may hear it on a future episode. Talk to you in two weeks.